Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us, or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. The future of talk radio. Buck Sexton. Going to ask Congress to immediately initiate work to get rid of this program. Diversity lottery sounds nice. It's not nice. President Trump, who who is... Uh not holding back at all when it comes to the uh, diversity lottery there. We'll get into that. Buck Sexton here with you all, team. Thank you so much for joining. It has been a uh, a very a, a lightning fast 24 hours in the, uh, in the news cycle with all the follow-up to this uh, terrible terrorist attack here in my uh, hometown here in New York City where we're coming to you live with this broadcast. Uh, the... the Facts of the case are lining up exactly as we thought they would last night when we were on air. In fact, some of what I was uh, posing to you as analysis is now just established as fact. We are dealing with uh, this individual, Saipov, who is a home from everything we have seen. Now, some of this is subject to additional information. There, there could be some some changes that uh, we should uh, we should be aware that could be added into this discussion, this analysis. But Saipov was a homegrown uh, ISIS-supporting uh, Islamic extremist. From what we see so far, a lone wolf, someone who just took up this evil cause of the Islamic State and viewed himself as a a self-starter mujahideen, and there have been other instances like this, other cases like this in the past. Nothing uh, particularly remarkable about this Saipov. Nothing about him that really sticks out all that much. Um, There have been some investigative reports or some, some, uh, some of the investigation that has been reported on and published is clearly... Uh, right in line with what we would have guessed when the initial facts within the first hour or two of this case when it came out. But we'll get into more of this because I know by the time many of you are listening to me, much of this information has been out there for uh, for a while. And what I wanted to focus on is the first, is the policy aspect of this. What can we do about it? There are not that many ways to identify and thwart radicals in the process of their attack planning for vehicle strikes like this. There's just not that many ways that it's going to happen. Your best chance is that someone will uh, make a mistake, that the terrorist, the would-be terrorist, will slip up in some way. But the president is making it very clear that 
he is going to make decisions as commander-in-chief that he believes are in the security interests of the United States. And that includes getting rid of the the diversity visa lottery program. So it's also known as the Green Card Lottery. It was part of the Immigration Act of 1990. Just a bit of background on this before we talk about how it factors into this terrorist attack. It didn't take effect until 1995. Uh, in 2016, there, there are about 45 to 50,000 of these year in, year out. So let's call it roughly 50,000 diversity visas um, that are given out each year. The United States, especially this is a, a very important statistic to keep in mind as we will hear about how Trump is so xenophobic and America isn't, you know, isn't what it what it once was because Trump is thinking about not taking quite as many people from countries that have a history of and continued ties to terrorist groups uh, that we give a million green cards a year in this country, a million a year. That is a lot. Think about what the now green. There are lots of different ways people get green cards, but think about the political earthquake that resulted in Germany after Angela Merkel took in a million refugees in, a, in about a one-year period. Uh, it was, I think, part of the uh, nationalist shockwave that stretched across Europe and and even affected the political discussion here in America. Now, those are refugees. They're coming almost in, they were coming entirely from Muslim majority countries and many war torn countries Our one million green cards a year are going to people who are relatives, family members. But it's still a lot of people. And that we would think about cutting back on the 50,000 diversity uh, visas that are given each year or at least limit some of the countries that are included in this process seems to be a discussion that is well worth having. And, and there's, there's a, a philosophical level of this as well as a security level. Let's deal with the, on the security side of this first. Uh, Trump has been looking at, his administration has been looking at, from the very beginning, what countries can we not trust when it comes to the vetting processes they have in place, right? The so-called travel ban that the Trump administration signed via executive order uh, which was one of the first moments that the hashtag anti-Trump resistance really congealed, really came together. But the administration has recognized all along that there are openings in our immigration policy that could be exploited by a determined enemy and that there are countries that are just simply not in a in a position or not willing to vet those who would get visas into this country thoroughly enough that that the administration is not concerned about the risk they pose. This is all this all when you look at it this way, it makes sense. There's nothing about it that's so beyond the pale, that's so uh, you know outside the boundaries of discussion. In fact, I think a lot of people say, yeah. That seems reasonable, right? People, Iraq was initially on the list, taken off the list. They made some changes. Iraq is off the list. From the most recent iteration of the list, we have some non-Muslim majority countries, including Venezuela, which is basically a failed state and a narco state right now. Uh, under other circumstances, I might just do a deep dive on what a what a, a terrible spiral of hell is 
Venezuela right now, but also North Korea was out of the list. And I don't think we have to sit around and think too hard about the threats that North Korea poses and why a regime that is openly involved in, or I should not necessarily openly, but is clearly involved in supporting uh, assassination and terrorism abroad and kidnapping foreign nationals from other countries. And, and the cyber threat from North Korea is also greatly underestimated. Uh, but they would be on this list, right? So it, it is clear from the most recent version of the travel ban that the Trump administration is doing this for security reasons. And that is the that is the impetus. That is, it is not animosity against people from one country or another. This is about keeping us safe and about bringing the balance of how the government views these issues back in favor of Americans, meaning that if it's going to disin, if, if it's going to uh, inconvenience twenty or thirty thousand, or or even if it means that there's a benefit, you know, a permanent benefit, which we're talking about with green cards here, for twenty or thirty thousand individuals who happen to be from a uh, a country that or countries that do not have procedures in place to make us confident that there is no likelihood of uh, jihadist penetration that we side with the security of the American people. We don't say, oh, well, we're, we're going to make some foreigners upset here. And this is where this is where the Democrat Party has been losing the uh, the American people in the majority. Now, I know there are a lot of their left wingers who are, oh, well, we should be open borders. And, you know, the, the more uh, the more America can be diversified or the, the, the greater the diversity of non-Americans in America, the better. And, and then there's all that propaganda that we've been taught to spew about how, you know, immigrants do the jobs Americans won't do and all of this. Right. Immigrants are essentially better than Americans. This has been an underlying theme with Democrats for a long time. America is the greatest, most powerful, richest country in the world. But it's foreigners are better than us. That's a simplification. But. At its core, that seems to be a belief in the Democrat Party. They're certainly better than us on average. That's what they would say, including illegal immigrants. who aren't even really immigrants, right? Illegal aliens. But so there's the security component of this, which is what can we do to stop someone from coming into the country or even what would be a worthwhile preventative measure to take so that no one can come into the country and threaten us from abroad, whether through the diversity uh, visa lottery program or something else. And then there's also just what the heck are we doing with our immigration policy? We're, we're just like, yeah, we're, we're, we're giving away we're giving away green cards like lotto tickets. I mean, that's what we're talking about here, everybody. And Trump, I think, hit some very important notes today on this when he said that not only is he terminating that program, but he wants a merit based immigration system. We want a merit-based program where people come into our country based on merit. And we want to get rid of chain migration. This man that came in, or whatever you want to call him, uh, brought in with him other people. And he was a point, he was the point of contact, the primary point of contact for, and this is preliminarily, 23 people that came in or potentially came in with him. 
uh, and that's not acceptable. So we want to get rid of chain migration. This is right in the center of the Trump agenda. Uh, And this is a time that I think a lot of people will pay attention to this discussion. Um, This is the time that we will see that there is a, a an openness, a willingness to look at the policies that we've had in place now for decades. And are they benefiting the American people? I mean, the whole notion of chain migration, we take one person, but then we have to take the, per, the, the person's whole family goes to the front of the line. How can anyone believe, how can anyone think that that is inherently advantageous, which is the way we should be looking at these issues, advantageous to the American people, to the rest of the American people. Chain migration is is the number one indicator. Someone who's here is able to sponsor other people to come here. That's at the very top, which is also why all the stuff they say, all this stuff about how, oh, you know, it's if there was an amnesty, it would be for three million. Well, that's just the fir- that's just the first tranche, right? That's just the first wave. Then all those people would be able to sponsor their. And if you say, oh, no, they wouldn't allow they wouldn't allow chain migration for the amnesty. Yeah, right. In fact, the political pressure, if there were an amnesty, the political pressure would only be raised on the notion of. Future amnesties for more individuals, right, through chain migration. It would only get worse. I'm going to get better. Oh, yeah. We took in three million. And and now, you know, they're, they're also, of course, going to be uh, they'll they'll have children who are U.S. citizens by birth and and they'll want to sponsor their relatives. Uh, the political calculation here is going to be, especially for, for the Democrats, it's what it's always been. It's about power. It's about votes. It'll be, well, we, we don't want to upset this growing constituency. So I guess we should have more chain migration. Right. I mean, we are at a, a tipping point for what our overall immigration philosophy is in this country. And those who say things like, oh, we just took your, uh, your, you know, we take the tire, you give me your tired, your weak, your hungry, all the, your huddled masses, your poor, all that, have no knowledge of what U.S. immigration policy throughout history has been. There have been times where we're just like, nope, we're good. We're, we're not taking a lot of immigrants right now. We've got, we're going to focus on the American people. We're a very big country with a lot of people. So. I think that uh, Trump making this case, this is a discussion that should be had. This is a discussion that there should be much greater focus on than there currently is. And I think that this will refocus uh, the administration and the media to some degree on immigration as a major. I want to take a minute to commend all New Yorkers. I want to commend everyone who lives in, works in, and visits our great city because no one in this city is complacent. We saw the strength of that resolve last night with the very large crowds that attended the annual annual Halloween parade in the village. And we'll see it again on Sunday when 50,000 people compete in a marathon and another 2.5 million people cheer cheer them along the route. I completely agree with the NYPD commissioner there. And, you know, this this is this is my hometown and, you know, it's a town in my country. Uh, I'm an American and it just. It breaks my heart that this happened here yesterday. This happened yesterday, but uh, America is a tough country, and New York City is a tough town. So we we are in we are already rebounding. We'll be we'll be all right. Um, 
just wonder when we can finally stop thinking about the possibility of some jihadist psychopath running down people or blowing up something or just being a problem, uh, a problem for civilization. I, I just, I wonder. Ron in Alaska on KENI. Hey, Ron. How you doing? I'm good. What's on your mind, Ron? Well, first of all, I want to tell you that we love you up here. Thank you, sir. Uh, and you know that. Uh, I'm wondering, what is, uh, why aren't we looking into this Uranium One uh, fiasco between the collusion between the Democrats and, and the Russians, specifically uh, their leader over there? Uh, and why don't we have a special Republican prosecutor looking into people like, oh, let's see, Eric Holder, Comey, Mueller, Rosenstein, uh, Brent. Well, you know, Ron, I, I think one of the problems here is that the the Democrats, as as the statist bureaucrat party, um, are, are also by nature more inclined to litigate their politics, meaning to to go through to use the legal system as a weapon of politics to get what they want when they can't get it through the ballot box and they can't get it through the Republican form of government that we have in this country. Uh, well, they, there's a lot of questions about who. Oh, there, there are there are a lot of questions about there. And, yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of questions about what and what happened and with uranium one. I mean, answers that, to this stuff. And Ron, I, I wish I and uh, thank you. And Shields High and thank you for calling in from way up in Alaska. Uh, I wish I had answers as to why it was that the Republicans allowed for a let's understand a special prosecutor is a political decision. Full stop. It has been every time in the past. It's, it's it is a political decision now. It has been a political decision. Uh, why don't Republicans respond in kind and look into all the dealings of the Clinton Foundation and the corruption there? I I do not have an answer uh, on the Uranium One deal. I. I would think that we should we should know everything that occurred there. Instead, we have what is it? The White House uh, communications director Hope Hicks is about to go into a Mueller deposition or sit down with Mueller and under oath. It's just one perjury trap after another with this investigation. You know, they're they're already trying to tell us that oh they got Papadopoulos like that's supposed to mean something to anyone who cares about the country and. You know, I'll be honest, I feel bad for the guy. Um, I think he just got in over his head and messed up. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. They're going to push it into the new year. And... All right, team, uh, good to have you back with me here. 844-900-2825. Let's take uh, Bob uh, in Massachusetts listening on the iHeart app. Hey, Bob. I I am indeed. You there? Yeah, we're listening, Bob. What's on your mind? All right. Well, I think the the problem with the diversity lottery can be found in the premise of the entire thing, and that is 
that somehow diversity is a property or a or a goal that we should be trying to achieve in the immigration and you know i have no qualms about having different ethnic groups in the united states that's not the problem but the problem is that whoever we let in the united states should be have has as their primary quality that they can respect others the thing that unites the american populace is that we have a respect for our fellow citizen and that if that isn't in existence then they should not be let into the country and if they come from a community that does not respect the other then we can't let them into our country well, and you know, Bob, there are, I think there are, what, 195 countries in the world. This whole notion of, of a diversity visa lottery, what is it? I don't even know what they think they're achieving with this, right? I mean, is, is it national diversity? Is it just ethnic? Is it religious diversity? Is it just, it, it's kind of the, the immigration policy equivalent of, now, look, there are some, uh, in this election process, you have to meet some secu- some basic security requirements. But, I mean, there's no ideological testing or anything like that. You had to basically get a uh, high school education or equivalent. Uh, and, you know, there are a few other—I mean, you, you can't be, like, on record as a mass murderer and get your diversity visa lottery, right? So, fine, but it's really the immigration policy equivalent of saying, you know, we're just going to—citizenship or, or permanent residency in the United States, green card— it's a very valuable thing. Let's just give it. Let's just give it out to some random people around the world. They have to apply for it, but let's just do it, just cause. No, it's, it's like it's like a pig in a poke, and and uh, we can't have that. If 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 you're coming to the United States, then you have to have some track record and have some experience dealing with. Other people that are not like you. Yeah. Isn't it fair to say that if we're going to bring people into this country, if we're going to give them the right to stay here and all the protection of all of our laws and and to enjoy all the benefits of being uh, being an American, aren't we allowed to find out, you know, what do you know about America? Do you love this place? What are you going to do when you get there? What's the I I think that's all fair. And I know that they have some of these processes in place for people who get uh, you know who are applying for the green card process but for the diversity visa thing it just it's just a bad it's just a failed policy a bad policy idea I don't I don't see how it's even really I mean Bob I know you agree with me on this but I'm just gonna say yeah. I don't even see how it's really intellectually defensible I mean, who who right that's and that's look true. HW I mean I, I'll call him out HW Bush was the one who signed uh, signed this thing into law back in whenever it was. Although, you know, Teddy Kennedy and the Immigration Act from the 60s was the one that got this whole chain migration thing started, which was sure, even bigger. Sure, it was, it was crazy. I mean, we, we weren't even looking at their Facebook feeds. No, I mean, I'm sure that would be considered, you know, that would be considered like prying too much or something. You know, like, it's just... Oh. Insanity. It's insanity, Total Bob. Insanity. Shields high. I, I agree with you. It's a cra- It's a. It's a bad policy, and it should. We should get rid of it, irrespective of the terrorist attack here in New York City. But uh, thank you for calling in, Shields high. Mike in North Carolina on WPTI. Hey, Mike. Yes, thank you for taking the call. 
I like what Bob said. I like what you said. I think the act is ridiculous. I think the 1965 um, machinations by Kennedy was bad. We had basically zero immigration from 24 until 65. I'm going to suggest to you that Ann Coulter's right. People need to come here when they can benefit us. And Dinesh D'Souza's right because he's living proof that the system works. But the one thing I would say is that as a former teacher, I am now working as a steam plant operator at a university within the, the North Carolina system. The young people are, be, are behind the diversity because they know no better. And well, that, no, actually, it's actually worse than that, Mike. Young people have been not just indoctrinated to think that anything that falls under the very loosely defined term diversity is good. They've been they've been force fed that in schools and the media for for decades now. But also on top of that, if you question it, never mind if you oppose it, if you even question diversity is our strength. Diversity is. I remember I'll be honest, I was overseas and I saw posters in military bases about diversity is our strength. And I kind of want to be like, I'm pretty sure uh, patriotism, courage, and being able to kick the enemy's butt is your strength, right? I mean, what's with this, yes. this propaganda poster that I'm seeing about how diversity is our strength, right? That's not, uh, anyway, it, it, but, but it's, it's in the schools, it's everywhere now. And if you question it, Mike, you're a bad guy. It's, you're not even and allowed to why, say, maybe we should I rethink left, this. That's why I left teaching. I had to finish up my state time. I'm operating a steam plant. It's a way to kick back and uh, beat the clock. Uh, my concern would also then be, are we at the tipping point in terms of age where the young people who know so much about so little, what did Reagan say? They know a lot, but it's all wrong. Are we at the tipping point then where just demographically we're not going to be able to elect people who can develop policies because the, the young people will outvote the smart? That's I just wonder about the demographics. Yeah, I mean, this is the the concern over the the low information voter. Although I will say, and Mike Shields, hi, great call. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Uh, I will say that my hope has always been, and maybe this is in some way self serving as well, because I happen to work in a business, conservative media, where we tend to, you know, we we don't have too many younger millennials who are consumers of conservative media. There are certainly some there's that exists. And I, I love when I hear from uh, conservatives or, 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 you know, anybody who listens to the show who's you know on campus, who's college age or, you know, grad students and all the rest of it. Uh, but I think that, you know, there, uh, there's that the cliche about if you're whatever it is, if you're under 35 and, you know, you're a, you're not a liberal, you don't have a heart. And if you're over 35 and you're not a conservative, you don't have a brain. I, I forget that that's roughly analogous to what the old saying is. But I think that what happens is that people ex- through experience, through through the experience of living life, through having had more contact with reality, people just become more conservative. That's that's my theory, at least. And and a big part of that as well, has to do with paying taxes. <laughs> a big part of that is having had experiences with government and the failures of government and the ways that government gets in the way of your life, of your business, of, of any number of things. And that the more, you know, the, the more time you have, the more likely 
you are the more time you have in this country, the more like you are to likely you are to say if you are somebody of open mind. Right. There's the indoctrination that is I think it used to be considered so much worse in public school because public school is state run. But now private school is in so many places, every bit is left wing. In some ways, it's probably even more left wing. Depends on where you know a, a private school in Berkeley or here in Brooklyn in New York City is going to be every bit as left wing as anything you get from the the public school system. Uh, but maybe that maybe there's no saving people from their misconceptions of what is reality. Maybe there's no way to stave off the uh, leftist surge. But I am hopeful. I am hopeful that there will be. Many conservatives who are forged through life experience that there are 25 year olds right now who think that, you know, Jimmy Kimmel is really funny and they love watching The Daily Show. And wow, Hillary Clinton would have been such a great such a great president. And in about five to 10 years, they'll be like uh, lower taxes needs to happen. And I listen to the Buck Sexton show. And I'm actually hoping that maybe in like the next you know, six to 12 months, <laughs> they will they will say, you know what? I've decided that this whole free college, everything free, just pay really high taxes thing is, is not going to work out. The government's not going to be able to deliver on its uh, promises when it comes to all this. And and that will be this. This is what I'm, I'm holding out hope for, uh, that there's a new generation of conservatives who are are up and I, I know that it already exists. I just want it to be even bigger. And to the question about right now, or the, one of the problems right now is that within millennials, there's a bulge of liberalism. Uh, and I think that will shift as the millennials get a little older. I'm a graybeard millennial. I'm an older. I'm an older and distinguished millennial. Uh, I, I might be aging out of. I don't know if that works that way. Can you can you stop being a millennial? Do you all of a sudden lose your millennial status? I don't know. These are not important questions, though. <laughs> Let me run into a break and let's get us I'll get us back on track here with some news of the day. And uh, second hour, we'll dive deeper into the psychology of this jihadist attack. Uh, why? How? Why would an individual radicalize in this way? And we've because we've spent a lot on in this hour on the diversity visa lottery and the immigration impact that this may have. And then third hour, I've got Martin Luther uh the 500th anniversary of the 95 Theses getting nailed to the wall of the cathedral at Wittenberg. Uh, we'll talk about that and some some of my thoughts on the growing controversy of sexual harassment in media, Hollywood, and we got a lot of seeking to strike our nation and it will require the unflinching devotion to our law enforcement, homeland security and intelligence professionals to keep America safe. We have to get much tougher. We have to get much smarter and we have to get much less politically correct. We will never waver in the defense of our beloved country ever. Strong words from President Trump. Strong words from the commander in chief in the aftermath of that terrorist attack yesterday. I went uh, downtown to uh, lower Manhattan this morning. I was uh, providing some on the scene analysis for Fox News and I could see the 
Home Depot, the wrecked Home Depot vehicle that was used as the uh, the weapon of mass mass murder here, the mass casualty terror attack. Uh, just off in the distance, there was a a group of uh, foren- officers uh, doing forensic analysis and pulling pieces of evidence. They were uh, all wearing white, so they were visible from afar, uh, and it just was. It was an interesting scene this morning. I will say it was it was heartening. It was encouraging that on the one hand you have this whole area that's blocked off, and you have this enormous uh, press gathering on the street. You know these these uh, bullpens set up just full of reporters and journalists and everything else. But if you went one block away from the roped off area, the city was as the city is. People going about their business, going to work, picking up their children from school or dropping them off at school, rather. I mean, everything that you would expect to be going on. And as I have said here, uh, we return to normalcy in our lives, but we do not allow for the normalization of jihadist terror. And that's an important uh, distinction. That's an important balancing act. I've got a lot of calls coming in. I wanted to get your voices in here because I know yesterday I... Uh, went off on quite a long buck rant over the course of the show um, because of the breaking news. So let's get uh, Brian in North Carolina, WPTI, into the Freedom Hut. Sir, good to have you on. Hey, Buck, appreciate you having me, man. I've been listening to you for a while, first time I've ever called in. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Yep. Uh, before I start off on my uh, my talking point here, I just want to say my heart, my prayers go out to all the people and families up in New York for what happened yesterday. So with that, uh, I was listening to the last call that you had, Buck, and you know he sounded like he was a little bit older than me. I'm 41. Um, I'll try to sum this up as briefly as possible, but it seemed to me he, he was kind of talking about the demographics between the young people eventually going to be able to outweigh in the voting booths you know, older folks and conservatives and things of that nature. Well, it was kind of an epiphany riding home listening to this guy because, you know, I was telling the lady who screened the call, you know, I've got four boys. Uh, Their ages are 14, 17, just turned 18, and 19 years old. So long story short, you know, back towards the end of last year, my 17-year-old at the time was sitting in the truck with me before basketball practice and he and I were talking about the election coming up with Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump. So through about a 10-minute, you know, conversation, I asked him what his opinion was. And, you know, half the things that came out of his mouth were, you know, lies and, you know, propaganda that are spit out to him at school and friends. And, fake and, fake news, and if you will, Brian. Fake news. Yeah, fake news. Exactly. So, you know, after about 10 or 15 minutes of talking to this kid and explaining to him what the truth was, not just my truths or my realities, but, you know, the truth about just things that are going on in the world, you know, with terrorism and, and economics and all this other stuff. You know, now six months later, my son is 18 year old. He absolutely loves Donald Trump. So, the point so there is, so there is hope, is, Brian, you're telling us there's hope. <laughs> no, the, the point is, is, but we need to take responsibility for our youth. You know, it's just like anything else in our country. You know, everybody wants to point the finger about what's wrong. Well, sometimes you got to take action and do what's right. Absolutely. And I guess that's my point. And I guess that's my point with me having four kids. You know, I'm not going to let the school system raise my kids and let them raise up, you know, four liberal young men. You know, they're in my house, and I take responsibility for them. So why wouldn't I take responsibility for, you know, 
whatever thoughts or actions they do outside of the age of 18 years old. You know, my influence on them, in my opinion, being their father, should be the greatest influence in their life outside of their mom. Absolutely, absolutely agree, so, Brian. A, a, a great so, call. So I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I said, so I guess that's my thought to your last caller, is that, you know, I guess that's what we kind of all get in the, uh, I, I guess, the, the whole action of always wanting to point the finger at liberals or conservatives or whatever. But, I mean, really, the reality of it is, is if we want something to change, we need to change that ourselves. Absolutely, and Brian. Shield time, man. Thank you so much for the call. I do appreciate it, and thank you for listening and supporting the show. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent. It's one of the reasons why I like doing history deep dives and also just trying to bring as, as much of an information-rich, uh, fact-dense show to all of you as I can because this is my life's work. I mean, I, I go to sleep at night reading books and taking notes about what I can talk to you about on this show. I wake up all day reading the news and then also reading books and engaging in, uh, scho- you know, engaging scholars and reading their uh, research on the topics that mean a lot. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Oh, my gosh. Of course, when there's an incident like this, you're going to have people who uh, they focus on on the problem. And no, no, not not terrorism. They they want to focus on, on Donald Trump. Please. Uh, the president's tweets, I think, were not helpful. Um, I don't think they were factual. I think they tended to point fingers and politicize uh, the situation. Uh, he was referring back to a uh, immigration policy that dealt with a lottery and blaming people who passed that uh, that immigration policy. Uh, his tweet wasn't even accurate, as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's not really- Accurate is is a thing that is true or not. It's not an, as far as I'm concerned. Look, I live here in New York, which means that Governor Cuomo is the governor of the state that I live in, and he is a very unimpressive individual as far as I'm concerned. But here we have him say, saying that Trump's tweets are, are a problem. You know, I was down, I mentioned that I was down at the site of the terror attack this morning with, with a, a whole bunch of press covering um, covering the, the incident. And I decided that I would be willing to, you know, because I'm a guy who's, especially on, on this subject matter, I'll talk to anybody who's going to let me talk who wants to learn something. And I walked past some BBC reporters. And they were like, oh, hello. And I'm just, actually, they, were, they had American accents, so I don't know if they were. Why, maybe that's BBC America. I don't know. I think it was BBC, BBC, whatever. And they said, would you be willing to talk to us? And I I said, "Okay." I just done all this Fox and I figured, "Okay, fine. Sure. I'll 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 analyze what I can for you of this terrorist incident. And. Sure enough, we go. Look, they asked uh, the woman that was the reporter asked some pretty straightforward questions. And then then we got to what the whole interview was really about, which is so Donald Trump tweeted some stuff. Uh, Would you agree that it's really unhelpful and terrible that he tweeted this stuff? And I kind of just wanted to say, you know. We've eight people killed just down the street from where we are yesterday. I got a terrorist that is completely unrepentant, saying he wants an ISIS flag in his hospital room. And we're hoping to stop the next version of this Sipov character from being able to engage in mass murder. And you really, you're really going to ask me about Trump's tweets. Huh? This, this is how it's going to be. You're going to ask me about Trump's tweets. That's what I... 
Instead, I said, well, there'll be a, an evaluation of all counterterrorism policy. I just I evaded because I didn't I didn't really feel like getting into a, a back and forth with this BBC reporter. And I, I knew that the, 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 the trap she had seen me talking to Fox. So I knew the trap was coming and I just figured I'll I'll evade instead of turning around and and opening, you know, making sure that school was in session. But it's just I think I said yesterday, they'll, they'll find a way to make Trump the problem. Sure enough, Trump's tweets, though, that's the problem. That is what we need to all be on guard against here. Uh, Bob in Michigan, you've been holding for a long time. I did want to get you in. Thank you for calling. How you doing, Buck? I'm good. I'm thanks, sure. for, thanks for your call. What's up? Um, well, uh, I've got a couple things to say. But first, I think the liberals are just mad about the tweets because their Obama phones can't tweet. Um, but uh, I know that you're a huge uh, action movie fan. Yes. And, my, and believe that uh, Terminator, not Terminator, Predator is one of the best. Yes, sir. I have to, I have to tell you that I taught my two-year-old to say, get to the chopper, hurry. Wow. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, that's one of the first phrases that he learned. You are devoted. All right. Fair enough. Oh, yeah. I, res- I got to respect that. <laughs> well, my point is, um, that two-year-old son of mine, uh, I'm, I'm a white guy and, uh, we adopted a black son. And so diversity does come into play for me and my family. Um, but with everybody worried about, you know, the, the diversity issue, um, I think they need to work on the diversity here at home before they worry about bringing other people here. I mean, the Republicans and Democrats can't even get to get, get along. How can they talk about other forms of diversity? I mean, you know, you've got black lives matter and, and, uh, white supremacist groups. And I mean, if we can't get along as people in our own country, uh, how are we going to be able to justify bringing people of other religions, other uh, mindsets here? Yeah, I mean, co- co- cohesion here at home is is, is still a wor- very much a work in progress, and and we are a very divided country now. Bob, I just want to say, uh, I don't think that people who adopt get nearly enough uh, enough praise and credit in our culture for uh, just doing a wonderful thing and and making somebody your child make it you know that, that that you adopted that young young boy uh, that's just you guys should get you being adoptive parents should get a lot more props if you will in the media and in our culture than than you do because it's a it's a wonderful choice and uh, instead of the dirty looks that we get because we have a black child well that you know, i mean anyone I, who's I, giving I, you any dirty looks is is a is an imbecile but anyway um right. god bless you and god bless yours bob thank you very much for uh, for calling in i appreciate it um, you know, I, I want to go into the psychology of the terrorist here as, as much as I can. I mean, this is going to be psychological diagnosis from afar, but really the, the ideology of jihad. And, and how is it that somebody could want to support the uh, failing, catastrophically uh, defeated now Islamic State? Based on the investigation overnight, it appears that Mr. Sapov had been planning this for a number of weeks. He did this in the name of ISIS um, and along with the other items recovered at the scene was um, some notes that further indicate that. He appears to have followed um, almost exactly to AT the instructions that ISIS has put out in its social media channels before with instructions to their followers on how to carry out such an attack. Uh, The notes were handwritten in Arabic. 
um, they had uh, symbols uh, and words, uh, but the gist of the note was um, that the Islamic State would endure forever. The Islamic State, which is under tremendous pressure in Iraq and Syria and is really in the process of elimination there, is still very much an ideology that is dangerous and virulent. Uh, I, I just would note, those of you who listen to this show will recall that last night I, uh, came on, I came on air at one point and said that I had a law enforcement source who said that there was ISIS and uh, Al- ISIS and Al-Qaeda, was what they're saying at the time, paraphernalia that had already been found. And sure enough, my source was accurate on that. Uh, so I, I would have broken that news on, uh, on TV, but I was here on radio. I was happy to break it for all of you. So uh, I think it's just worth noting that that was... Uh, well, it was certainly plausible at the time, but also my initial source on that term uh, turned out to be correct. And in these cases, you have so many people who are rushing out with uh, rumors and with nonsense. And I have to say, I'm somewhat surprised sometimes that there aren't more uh, folks out there who say, hey, Buck, you used to work for the NYPD. I have a feeling you may have better sources in the NYPD than just random folks who want to go on television or who want to go on on radio. Uh, But nonetheless, that was correct, what I told you last night, and I was glad that I was able to bring you the information early on. Also, everything else that uh, I was discussing with you here on on the show and and have been talking about for the last 24 hours or so, pretty much nonstop, uh, has turned out to be all the analysis if you want, you can go back and listen to the show. And look, I, there's more important things than just, hey, everything I said was correct. But that is, uh, I think, a, a fair reading, not everything, but I think over 90% as a fair as would be a fair reading of what's going on the last 24 hours. And so I, I do uh, ask all of you to keep that in mind. The next time there's an incident of this nature and you want uh, facts and analysis, uh, remember who said what and who was right, um, because the facts do matter in these cases. And there's a lot of shoddy and politicized uh, analysis out there. There are a lot of, quote, counterterrorism experts who are just straight up hacks, never worked, never worked a counterterrorism case in their lives and have no idea what they are talking about and just muddy the waters and make it more difficult in these initial hours afterwards to find out what's really going on. But back to the police chief's uh, the police chief's statement, or, I'm sorry, the counterterrorism commissioner's statement there, uh, John Miller, when he said that this was done in the name of ISIS. I, I think it's it's worth drilling down into this a bit, because when when you look at what we know about the Islamic State and how much more information has come out. I mean, we, we here's the assumption that Saipov, the terrorist who's now in custody and has been charged Uh, with providing material support to a terrorist group and violence and destruction of motor vehicles. Uh, So he he has been charged and is certainly facing uh, life in prison. But Saipov may have self, it looks like he self-radicalized. It looks like Saipov was an individual who did not have any, I know there are reports that they're looking for another person, but that's very early stage. As I go on here, they're saying they're looking for another person not a suspect necessarily, but a person of interest. That could just be you know, a family member or a neighbor. They want to see if that person knew anything about any of this. Uh, but 
Saipov self-radicalized, which means that he was using, and they have ISIS-related material that they found on his computer. But that means that he was connected and he was paying attention to what was going on in the world of ISIS. So he's someone who saw, who must have known, that not only is ISIS barbaric, vicious, bloodthirsty, uh, enslaving and raping women and young, and young girls, uh, trying to exterminate the Yazidi uh, religious minority in Iraq, saying that they are, uh, they are kufar, they are non, non-believers, uh, that they're actually devil worshippers is the slander that is levied against them by ISIS and by other jihadists, other Sunni Arab hardliners, I should note, uh, within the Muslim world. But ISIS is not only this terrible terrorist group, it is a failure. It is not working. It, it is falling apart. And it, there have been plenty of stories, and maybe he dismisses it. If somebody had asked me, well, how would you explain this uh, right off the bat? Maybe it's it's dismissed as propaganda, right, from from the West, meaning maybe the stories about ISIS defectors who say, look, I didn't show up just to be a, a suicide bomber. I thought I was joining the caliphate and would lead a, a glorious life as a member of the Mujahideen or, or whatever. But there are all these stories of people who have showed up uh, to fight for the Islamic State and feel like it is a poorly run uh, and and so I'm just mean from the from the perspective of somebody who's inclined to want to take part in jihad, ISIS is a catastrophe and a, and a failure. ISIS was a catastrophe and a failure. So why would somebody still? I mean, this is a question that I haven't heard many asking, and I just think it's an interesting, uh, interesting ideological investigation or or exhibition right now to go through this. Why would somebody want to? engage in a terror attack for a, why would someone kill for a dying cause if you will how could someone at this stage of the game of the global war on terrorism say i want to i want to fight alongside isis knowing that it's on it is in retreat it is collapsing the caliphate is collapsing in iraq and syria it's not what it's pretended to be you have foreign fighters who have been uh absolutely vicious even to other muslims who are iraqi and and syrian and this has all come out and there's i mean who could ever think that this cause of the islamic state specifically would be something that you would fight for never mind that you would kill innocent people thousands of miles away yeah i i go back and forth with saipov this uh uzbek immigrant thinking on the one hand, there must be some part of him that is is deranged, but and I know that he was saying in custody after he had survived the gunshot wound from the valiant NYPD officer, who I think a lot of us were thinking, you know, probably could have put more than one in him, but you know, thank God he put one in him, right? I mean, under the circumstances, it's 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 pretty amazing that Saipov was not. Uh, was not killed that said uh, and and thank thank god for that nypd officer standing up and doing the right thing and and shooting down this terrorist when he did but you just have to stop and think so saipov is is deranged but also i don't want to excuse his 
in, in any way, his reprehensible, vile behavior by suggesting that maybe he's not of sound mind, right? That he's, this would be the equivalent of saying he's not fit. You know, you start saying, oh, he's deranged, he's a psychopath, he's a lunatic. But at the same time, he's not somebody who we would say is unfit, you know, mentally or psychologically unfit to stand trial. So I just I, I go back and forth on this with how do you assess the psychology of someone who n- not only would run down eight completely innocent people and murder them with a vehicle, just I, that's it's so barbaric, but that would do it specifically in support of this cause that he has no connection to. Other than ideologically, but I mean, no actual time spent in the Islamic State wasn't indoctrinated in uh, in some ISIS madrasa or anything like that. Right? Doesn't have comrades in arms on the front lines in Iraq or Syria or anything. He, from what we know right now, he just read and watched and heard things on the internet. Uh, because when he when he came to America, it, we we don't believe that he traveled uh, to ISIS or to any ISIS controlled territory. The Islamic State didn't even exist. So this all must have happened. It's the overwhelming likelihood is that this occurred while he was here in America, which means that this guy who's a, an Uber driver here in New York City who has a has a girlfriend, has a few kids. He made this decision to fight for ISIS. How is it possible? You know, if we're going to talk about counter-radicalization or de-radicalization, I think it's worth exploring the psychology here to the degree that we can. How is it possible that anybody would come to this conclusion? And, And I don't have any hard and fast answers here other than the the uh, the call to jihad within the Islamic faith for some individuals is profound. The call to violence in the name of God and to be a, a, a so-called uh, mujahideen, a, a holy warrior, has has a tremendous pull. And we've finally gotten away from these uh, outdated and, and false theories about how terrorism comes from a lack of jobs or a lack of opportunity or no most most of the jihadists that are blowing themselves up or running cars over people or just engaging in mass murder of of random civilians are on glo- by global standards well off middle class even by western european standards oftentimes educated even having higher education as as part of their profile so this is about the power of belief, as, as I often say, a belief in jihad. I mean, you, it, it comes from within the Muslim community, which we already established yesterday and we've known for a long time. It comes from within that very large pool of recruits of 1.7 billion people, over 99.9% of whom have no interest or connection to terrorism whatsoever, you know, we've gone over the numbers, right? 1.7 billion, a very small percentage is still a very large problem. But as we try to understand what could we do or how could we know, the only precondition for this kind of behavior is a belief in jihad. That's the only real similarity. There are people from different, this guy's an Uzbek. There have been 
Moroccans and Saudis and Syrians and Indonesians and Filipinos and go down the list. uh, Converts from literally any ethnic or religious background. They convert to Islam and they can become a terrorist too. So belief is the precondition of belief in jihad. It is psychological. It is a state of mind. And but the, the decision, though, to fight specifically for ISIS is something that we should not just skip over because the Islamic State is in a series of defeats right now. And perhaps some of its ideological fellow travelers feel the only way they can turn this around is to attack, to take ISIS's call to heart and to attack in their own homelands and reverse the fortunes, I suppose. Of- Other shows just talk at you. In the Freedom Hut, we have a mission. We fight for the truth in a team effort. And Buck is back with our next play. I can't help but notice that there's such a change in in tone. Now, now, moving to the the political side of all of this, uh, you, you had after the Las Vegas shooting, Many Democrats, many people in the media, the, the, the immediate discussion turned into how they uh, need, we need to do more on guns, we need to ban guns. And then that was pushed back a bit. Then that was, I think, the first time that I can really remember where the effort to take a tragedy and make it uh, something that is a, a politically useful moment for Democrats. Uh, they certainly jumped at the opportunity, but they also uh, weren't able to make the case with Las Vegas because the guy purchased all his weapons legally. And the only thing they were seizing on there for political reasons was the bump stocks, which I said, OK, even the NRA is saying maybe we regulate bump stocks. You already have the regulation of suppressors and and fully automatic weapons are very heavily regulated, but I suppose maybe bump stocks, although it won't do anything. But then you get into whether you believe it is politically wise to uh, make the concession to the other side as a means of seeming reasonable. That was true on Las Vegas. But now that we're dealing with a case, a case where all of the all of the assumed, all of the all of the guessed at aspects of this terrorist case fit in line with a narrative that the left does not in any way, shape or form want to discuss. We are being told no surprise here. Oh, wait, hold, let's hold off on the politicization of this. Look, the last thing the president or anyone else should do is politicize this tragedy. Well, Unfortunately, we've all been quite conditioned by Democrats over the years to see any mass casualty incident like this as as a moment when there will be a political debate. Now, I'm not just saying Democrats aren't the only ones who do it. Others do it as well. But especially on the uh, gun issue, especially on um, the issue of any mass casualty incident that involves firearms, which this is. One in New York City, uh, this vehicle attack, um, I guess the the Halloween Eve mass casualty incident here in New York, 
there was there were fake guns, but there were no actual guns. So there's not really a gun control issue. They're not going to say, OK, no more paintball guns. Right. That's that's ridiculous. But looking into what they've said in the past versus what they say now, you have Bill de Blasio, for example, tweeting out in June of 2016, Orlando, Bill de Blasio was the guy that we just played a moment ago, right, saying let's not politicize this. But here's what he writes in June of 2016. Orlando, San Bernardino, Newtown, how many more cities have to become synonyms for tragedy before GOP puts U.S. lives before NRA cash? I don't know how much more clear we can uh be about this, but the the left's hypocrisy because of the internet now, and because of the uh, uh, the other forms of media out there that can counter their narrative and don't allow them to have absolute control over the entirety of the discussion when it comes to uh, what politicians have said now versus what they've said in the past. We can see, we can see for ourselves that there are. So many instances of just rank hypocrisy and the politicization of tragedy on the left is a knee jerk response. They always do this unless they can't come up with a narrative that they like. Then they tell us, let's not politicize it. Now, in this case, I don't think it is politicizing to take some of the steps that are now under discussion. And I'm very honest with all of you that I'm. Uh, not certain that there is a a clear there's not that not a clear obvious way to handle these vehicle attacks. It is very difficult to stop a vehicle attack if you aren't able to get the would be terrorist at the point of radicalization and preparation. If you're waiting for Oh, he's in the car, he's turning the keys, he's already rented it, you know, he's in the van or the truck or whatever it may be. You're likely going to be counting casualties instead of counting your blessings for a close call. That is why these vehicle attacks are increasing in frequency, because it is easier for the terrorists to pull them off, and they're realizing that if their real goal is to create chaos and and engage in murder on a massive and systematic scale over over attack after attack after attack. Remember, the jihadists believe that they can change our society and they can weaken us and slowly bleed us out. America, our European allies and the whole Western world, the whole free world, right, including our, our allied nations all over the world. They believe that a, an approach of countless small-scale attacks will be sufficient to, to bleed us out over time. And the vehicle strategy, the vehicle attack strategy falls right into that. It is uh, absolutely, for them, the most efficient and effective way of conducting terror attacks. No training necessary, and what are what are the ways that this could be stopped? I don't have anything particularly uh, brilliant in terms of countermeasures to share with you. We've been discussing what President Trump has said about immigration and extreme vetting, and I, I do believe that there is, there is room certainly now 
to take a take a second look or to revisit the debate over extreme vetting as a result of where the administration is on all this, right? We we are aware of the fact that there is an importation of extremist jihadist ideology that occurs if you do not take into account that some of these countries, while full of lots of very kind and decent people who mean no one any harm, Unfortunately, their fellow countrymen, in some cases country women, are ideological hardliners that view themselves as warriors, mujahideen, holy warriors, in this really cosmic struggle against us for global domination. And I know that these are grandiose terms that we don't like to think in that way, and particularly among Democrats, but among plenty of Republicans as well, you have this idea that terrorism is just is is a law enforcement problem only and we should view jihad as no greater a strategic threat to the United States than you know white supremacy or any other you know neo nazis i mean I, whatever the extremists are that they like to they like to put into the discussion and i i just think that what we have seen is that time and again there is an unwillingness on the left to focus on the problem, speak candidly about it, and try to make, talking about progressives here, they do not want to make progress on the issue of counter-radicalization. They want to ignore it. They'd rather try to make it go away. And, and that's why we hear, let's not politicize it now. Oh, let's not politicize it this time because the guy didn't use a gun. Let's not politicize it this time because it's the rare incident of a a right-wing domestic extremist in this country who, uh, you know, engages in an act of terrorism. It happens. We still, I I think that the Las Vegas shooter, by the way, I still don't know a a lot of things there that are unanswered, and I'm wondering when we're going to get a more full accounting of what the investigation into that mass shooting in Las Vegas has found out. Uh, It seems to me that there is a lot uh, there is a lot that has not been uh, that has has not been answered with regard to the Las Vegas investigation. So we'll continue to look at that as well. But just the the calls not to politicize this issue, it, we we all understand this for what it is. They don't want it this time around. It doesn't get politicized. But the next one, if it's a narrative that they are more comfortable with, they will certainly make an effort to politicize. Uh, we will be uh, talking to Eric Metaxas later on in the show about his book on Martin Luther. I meant to get to that last night, and so we will make good on that promise tonight. And uh, in, particularly in the third hour, we'll be changing up a whole bunch of topics. Is tax reform actually going to happen? You know, there's so much else going on right now, and, and understandably so, that the primary legislative effort underway right now, the whole discussion over and the the various details of the tax plan seems to be getting lost lost and i think that what we're going to have to see, what we're going to have to prepare ourselves for those of us who are hoping for the administration to get some legislative points up on the board i think we have to be ready for the possibility that this is going to wait and that this is going to be not nearly, not nearly as uh, 
fantastic a tax plan as was initially uh, promised. It, look, it, it's it's not going to be. It has not been released today. It might be released tomorrow, and and I understand that perhaps this is all being pushed back, being pushed back so that you know there's other things right now that have moved to the front of the government of the administration's agenda. But I I do think it's it's important that we not entirely lose sight of what's at stake here with regard to the economy and the overall political direction of the Republican Party right now. Uh, according to Politico, this is what this is what the holdup may be. Quote, not 24 hours before the bill's big reveal, lawmakers had yet to settle on one of the most sensitive questions of all, how to pay for their proposed five point five trillion dollars in tax cuts since any major revenue generator is certain to antagonize some powerful lobby or group of lawmakers who could defeat it. <laughs> you know, th- this is what has not been discussed. And I, I, I don't mean to be the guy that's uh, raining on the parade here. I don't mean to be the one who's you know, not willing to get on board and, you know, make America great again and everything else. But there's been so little discussion. And this is a Republican Party thing. This isn't just this isn't just an issue of the Trump administration or President Trump himself. This is a a GOP wide shortcoming. We have been told that there are going to be these great taxes. There's going to be simplified rates. There's going to be a tremendous amount of growth and overall prosperity for the American people that will come from these uh, tax cuts. And yet, what about the $20 trillion of debt? What about the fact that we are running up that debt clock even more this year to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars? There has been no. And, and now they're going to get in the Congress. They're going to get all caught up on whether this whether the tax cuts pay for themselves. I hate the way that they talk about this. I don't like this notion that taxes somehow are this thing that whatever the rate is right now or whatever the expectations were for revenue, which is just a nice way of saying taking your money. Whatever the way, whatever the expectation was for taxation, I don't like revenue. I don't like this. That's your money they're taking. Uh, that if there's a change to that, and if the, the American people, if the taxpayer gets to keep more of his or her private property, then that is some shift in the force, right? That is a, a disturbance. That is a, a problem. Um, but apart from the the verbiage that's used in the whole tax discussion, uh, you know, apart from the uh, continued, I think, dishonesty on the part of Democrats and, and even some Republicans when it comes to what the tax cuts are really going to be all about, what they will do and what the future of the tax code will look like, the problem of the debt has only gotten worse, and we are not having a discussion 
about what the current tax proposal, we don't even know what the proposal is. We do not have a, a real sense of what they plan to do about the debt. For example, in, in uh, Business Insider, they just wrote about some of the other problems that have come up here. Like, for example, quote, Republicans don't yet know what they'll do about state and local tax deductions. Repealing this provision is supposed to raise $1.3 trillion over a decade. It's crucial to financing the overall package, but members from blue states hate it, and it's one of the provisions driving tax increases for middle and upper middle class households. So there are people who absolutely despise some of the core tenets of this proposed tax package and they they haven't agreed on this yet and and we haven't even talked about the debt i'm telling you this is just gonna they're gonna push it into the new year and we're we're losing time here there needs to be a sense that the gop and the trump administration can get legislation that matters for the american people done so we have to we have to keep hold them accountable and focus on this as we go. All right, we'll be back with more, including a discussion of Martin Luther and the 95 Theses that we meant to have uh, yesterday. Stay with me. Oh, wait, wait, wait. One more thing before. <laughs> sorry. Part, pardon me for a moment here. Before I go into the, uh, the next hour, I should note that there was a, uh, a news event today that caught my attention that I do not have, well, This is really a a promise that at some point in the future I will follow up on this. Um, But we have uh, more documents, according to CNN here. More documents have been released from the uh, Bin Laden raid. And this is, I I think, one of these times when I have to to assume that I will dive deep into this. Here's what uh, CNN was reporting on. CIA releases more files, says it came from bin Laden raid, including his journal. Oh, wow. Might be able to dive into bin Laden's journal now in my free time, which I think is something I am going to have to do. And I'll tell you what I managed to find there. I should note that uh, there are still a lot. There's still a lot that was not released from the bin Laden raid. One thing that was interesting to me was that they said that they couldn't release stuff that obviously national security things, but also anything from the bin Laden raid that included copyrighted material, malware or and pornography. So uh, bin Laden must have had some uh, some stuff on his computer, which I I don't think people would think about that very often. But there's there's that. Yesterday was the 500th anniversary, 500 years since uh, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses up to uh, the Castle Church in Wittenberg. We have somebody who can tell us about the significance of this and what it means, well, just as a, as a story in history that we should all know, but also for the uh, discussions that are going on still to this day about intellectual freedom and religion and everything else. We've got Eric Metaxas on the line. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author uh, who's just written a book about Martin Luther called Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world. Eric, thanks for making the time. Great to have you. Oh, listen, thanks for having me. And it's, uh, it's exciting to talk about something I'm excited about, Buck. What can I tell you? Well, tell us why the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther is something that everybody not just history buffs everybody should take a moment and think about well yeah i 
with most of my books, I go into it kind of ignorant, and I'm unaware until I begin to do the research. I had a couple of friends. I dedicate the book to them. One of them is the president of the King's College here in New York City. He said, Eric, you've got to write a book on Luther for the 500th anniversary, which is in a few years. And I just thought, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm interested in Luther. But he began to explain to me the significance of Luther. And as usual, I felt embarrassed. I thought, how did I miss the significance of this man? I mean, first of all, if you're a patriot, if you care about American self-government and, and freedom, our version of freedom, true freedom, religious liberty, all the stuff that we care about that is the most important thing in the world and for the whole world, it began with Martin Luther 500 years ago. Now I've done the research, I've told the story, and I see the connection. It really was not clear to me. Um, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have George Whitfield and the United States of America if you didn't have Martin Luther. So it really is the pivot point in the last 2,000 years. It's the moment where these ideas, which of course you find in the Bible, in the Gospels, these ideas are dragged into history in such a way that we've never been the same. What I say is that it's like Luther opened a door and the future walked through the door. We, we've simply never been the same since he introduced these ideas. What was the necessary context? I mean, Eric, I know you meticulously research all your books. What's the necessary context for those listening to understand, to get a sense of just how much of a, of a revolutionary act it was to nail yeah. these 95 theses to that door uh, at Wittenberg, well, what, what was it, 500 years ago? Yeah, 500 years ago, yesterday, theoretically. Well, to tell you the truth, that itself, there are a number of things that I discovered, which I, I love discovering the truth and the facts when you can find them. And I discovered that the, the nailing of the 95 theses, when he did it, was not really at all significant, and it was not very brave of him to nail the theses to the wall. We remember it that retroactively. We look back and we realize that's when it all began. But Luther's incredible bravery uh, and courage came a couple of years later. But we trace things back to, to 1517, 500 years ago, because when he posted this document uh, of the 95 theses, that's what kicked everything off. But to give it to give us perspective on it, what he was doing, he saw that this thing called indulgences, which I won't go into, but it was, a, it was a practice in the church that had become corrupt, and many, many people, not just Luther, knew that this was bad, this needed attention. He decides, he says, I'm a theologian, I'm a doctor of the church, it's my responsibility to, to begin uh, discussing this, but he, he wasn't thinking of himself as a reformer. Not even a hint of that was there in 1517. He only wanted to have an academic debate on the subject of indulgences with other academics with the idea that we're going to go through the proper channels, we're going, to, we're going to bring some reform, but through the proper channels. He didn't even dream of breaking away from the Catholic Church. So he, he posts this document for a debate on the local bulletin board, which happens to be the big wooden door of the church. He didn't say, how can I make a big statement? I got it. I'm going to nail this incendiary document to the door of the church. Everybody will see. No, it, it, I mean, if you were missing a cat, you would post the document saying, can you find Smokey on the door of the castle church? So in retrospect, we look at it as this big dramatic thing. It was not. Uh, what happened, though, was that that document 
because of the printing press, which didn't exist long before this, uh, suddenly people start reproducing the document and they translate it into German without his permission. It just went viral, as we would say today. And it began an argument that he never wanted to have. And it sort of spiraled out of control so that by the time you get to 1521 and the, the ill-named diet of worms, you have him finally being confronted by the powers of that day. And it was in that moment that everything changed in 1521 where he says, what I've discovered, you know, this went way beyond indulgences. Four years later, they had they they dove into everything else in the four years between. So now he's being questioned, and he says, if in effect, he said it humbly but strongly, he said, I can't back down. What I have discovered needs to be said. And they effectively said to him, shut up or we'll burn you at the stake. And he said, well, you know, you can burn me at the stake, but I, I stand before God. I'm more afraid of lying in public and, and pretending that there's no problem. I have to say what I'm saying. So it was an incredibly brave moment. By defying the authorities of the day, um, it, you know, it was not very different from somebody defying Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea. I mean, if you would say, I have a different view of truth, any kind of uh, situation from the medieval era and before that, they would just crush you in the way you'd be crushed in a dictatorship today. In those days, you didn't do that, but he, he felt compelled to do it. When he did it, and the fact that he got away with it, and that these ideas sort of uh, got out of the horse, got out of the barn, there was no going back. Luther introduced us to a world where it is possible to dissent from the powers that be. It gives us our, our, our idea of the individual and conscience and all this kind of stuff. It's very important we know our history. And if you, if you care about America, you have to understand this is where it came from. Historically, there's no denying it came from what happened 500 years ago because of this maniac monk who, who simply could not back down. He didn't feel he had the freedom to back down. We're speaking to Eric Metaxas, and he's got a great book that's out right now, just out, uh, Martin Luther, The Man Who Rediscovered God and Changed the World. Eric's a New York, a New York Times number one best-selling author, by the way. Uh, Eric, the aftermath, though, of this fantastic intellectual and, and theological and ideological uh, debate that was sparked by Martin Luther, uh, things got messy, I think is one way to put it. What can you tell yeah. us about that? Well, I mean, the misunderstanding was, it, it happened from the get-go. In other words, it seems clear to me that he really was a humble monk who did not want trouble. So when he's portrayed that way, that's wrong. He became that later. But he initially is trying very humbly to put forward a few ideas, and he wasn't even prepared to go to battle. He just thought, this is my duty. But as I say, it spirals out of control because suddenly... Politics gets involved, egos get involved, and what he was hoping would be uh, a logical path forward among Christians to try to figure out what is true just became this free-for-all where he was being attacked, then he defends himself. In defending himself, he says things maybe he shouldn't say. Um, it, it is really fascinating how it quickly spirals out of control and becomes an idea that has leapt way beyond the cultural elites people in the streets, people in the villages of Germany, and then way beyond Germany, are reading Luther's ideas and saying, wait a second, he's right, we agree with him. Uh, finally, someone is speaking up. Finally, somebody who has the ability to speak up is daring 
to speak up. And so these ideas had a life of their own. In other words, it wasn't just Luther. Even if he had been killed at some point, the ideas, because of the printing press and because of Luther's ability to get the ideas out via the printing press at some point, went so far beyond him that there was no looking back. And so, yes, it got very messy. There were wars and so on and so forth. But this is this is the birth of freedom. If you really want to know where it come from, it came from. And the good news, I would say, is that it's a very entertaining story, and Luther is a hugely entertaining figure, actually very funny. And, and I, it's what persuaded me, Buck, to write the book, because the Bonhoeffer story, as you know, it's a very serious story. It's a very difficult story. It's not what you'd call fun and entertaining. The story of Luther, in some places, is absolutely hilarious. And I thought, that kind of a book uh, I'm, I'm willing to write. And I'm so far, people have said it's a fun, easy read, which I promise you, I was not expecting people to say. But it's been said enough that I can repeat it. I'm, I'm thrilled as the author. Uh, I, I want people to enjoy history and not feel like it's a slog. Well, Eric, uh, congratulations on publishing yet another fantastic book. Everyone listening, go check it out. Martin Luther, The Man Who Rediscovered God and Changed the World. Google it. Check it out on Amazon.com or in fine bookstores everywhere. Eric Metaxas, everybody. Eric, great to have you, man. Thanks for thanks for joining us. My joy. Thank you, Buck. All right, team. I am going to come back in just a few minutes here with uh, some updates on more of these accusations about uh, sexual harassment that are out there and also some thoughts on attorney-client privilege and Mueller. The sexual harassment allegations that keep coming out of the uh, news cycle every day um, this is this is a reckoning. Uh, this is well beyond just a uh, a a temporary news cycle enhanced uh, blip where you have people who have been uh, harassed and who have been mistreated and who have been in some cases abused and and even assaulted that they're coming forward now and speaking out against powerful people in Hollywood is indicative, and not just Hollywood, in the media in general, this is indicative of a particular moment right now when I think the whole country is uh, waking up to the reality, and some people don't really care much, but those who are paying attention are waking up to the reality of how much exploitation and bad behavior there has been in the entertainment industry, and in the media more generally. And it's everywhere. And we do need to look at the culture behind all this. And that means the culture that is producing all of this too, right? So there's the Hollywood and media culture specifically. But then there's also, how is this happening in our own country? What kind of deterioration of a sense of honor, integrity, and, and decency has festered to this point that there can be so many powerful, rich. I mean, these are people who maybe don't think of themselves this way, but they are so blessed. In fact, it would be very accurate to refer to them as lucky. They are lucky that they are in this position. They are lucky that they have been successful in this industry. I mean, I can tell you from just the from a young person in media, relatively young person in media perspective, is a brutal business. It's terrible. It's not fair. Uh, People use every advantage at their disposal. 
And it creates, I think, a tremendous resentment. And some individuals, when they get into a place to uh, unleash, to, to slash out at people, they take that opportunity and they take it with sexual harassment, uh, sexual aggression in the workplace, and, and all these behaviors that we're seeing. Uh, you know, you've got now even Dustin Hoffman, who has been accused in the Hollywood Reporter of sexually harassing a young woman. She was 17 a long time ago. Six women have accused the filmmaker Brett Ratner as of today of sexual harassment. Uh, just there's more and more and more of this. I can't even keep up with it. It, it is a true deluge. I mean, there is so much, so much uh uh, of this, of these allegations that are coming out right now, and you just have to wonder how was it even possible? How was it even possible that some of these cases did not come to light until now? I mean, there's really a need for a somewhat radical cultural rethink, I believe, uh, in light of what we are finding out here, because these are privileged and uh, certainly elitist, if not elite individuals who are just acting like uh, assuming now look, assuming the allegations are true. And we already had our first high profile fake allegation of sexual assault or sexual assault was actually the allegation with George H.W. Bush, you know, 95 year old man who has dementia in a wheelchair, making a, an off color joke and touching a woman's waist for a photo is not sexual assault. And anyone who thinks it is is an idiot. There will be others. And this is why I try to stick to the, the language of allegation and reported and not just say, well, this guy did this and that guy did that. Because right now, there are a lot of cases breaking where it seems very likely that the individual who is accused is in fact guilty of, based on the number of accusers and the kind of conduct alleged, and also their initial statements, right? I'm going to go fight the NRA, or I'm, a, I'm going to live my life as a gay man. These kinds of uh, di diversions, these kinds of efforts to turn the public's eyes away from the reality of what has been happening here, to me, indicates that there is guilt and there's a lot of guilt with some of these people that have been accused. Now, where I think this goes is what is concerning, because right now with a lot of these uh, really, I mean, you, you have these really high profile egregious cases, but there is a political mobilization that has taken place here. There is a there is a tremendous amount of power that has shifted right now. And the formerly harassed and oppressed are able to flip the script and, in many cases, I, uh, very justifiably and, and rightfully, uh, going after those who have abused them in the past. But I do caution here that it, it is going to be used. I don't know. I don't know when, but it is going to be used against people for reasons of politics meaning that once there is a clear opening, once it is obvious that uh, there is somebody who is a target of the left, this, think of it like the, the Anita, Anita Hill situation with Clarence Thomas, where a, what 
to me seemed a, a flimsy case was used to almost bring down a very good man and prevent him from being on the Supreme Court. Just the, the Clarence Thomas effect is going to happen or the Clarence Thomas anti Clarence Thomas playbook is going to come up here. Just mark my words. There will be and it will be sooner than later, I believe, a thrown into this current maelstrom of sexual harassment revelation. Uh, there will be somebody who is targeted specifically. And, and this is our you've seen some efforts at this here and there on the right, but there will be either a politician, a media figure, someone who's on the wrong side of the political left will become a target and there will be flimsy allegations and unsubstantiated claims that they hope to just use to to use the current the momentum of the moment in order to push somebody out. You know, so I don't know if it's going to be a senior Trump official. I don't know if it's going to be a major conservative media figure, but they're going to they're going to put somebody in the on the hot seat here and they're going to hope that they can ruin a career, scare advertisers, scare employers before the full facts come out and they will weaponize this moment for political reasons. That's what I see happening here. I'm happy that all this is coming out about the uh, I'm happy that all this is coming out about Hollywood and about the media and all of this. I think that's that's we should know about this and people should get justice and there should be punishment for those particularly those who broke the law, but also for those who were acting in a way that was highly unprofessional. But as I was saying, make no make no mistake about it. And I, I just keep ringing the alarm bell here. The left is going to see this as an opportunity to pull the Clarence Thomas playbook on somebody at a time when I don't know how many companies or how many sponsors would be willing to wait it out and see what the real facts are. All right, I'm going to have more, including uh, more on the Mueller investigation coming up right after this break. Is is attorney-client privilege sacred? Is it something that we should all defend in this country? Is it a, a bedrock legal principle, a principle of our uh, criminal justice system and, and beyond, just of our legal system? I think you'd answer that with a yes, but I'm going to tell you something. Special Counselor Mueller seems to not think so. Just one note as a follow-up to the uh, Mueller investigation that I think has not gotten nearly enough attention. I mean, one of the mandates, uh, in my opinion, for this show, one of the things that I try to always make sure and do is whenever there is a story that I believe has been largely overlooked or perhaps even not covered at all, I think it is an obligation for me to spend some time going into why I think this was important and should have gotten, uh, should have in fact gotten more attention than it did. And a perfect example of that on the uh, Mueller investigation is the, and in the investigation, the head special prosecutor, uh, former FBI director, he's special counsel, Robert Mueller, got Manafort's attorney to speak against him. Uh, th this, is, this is pretty no-holds-barred prosecutorial stuff, and it's not just... Look, there are a couple of layers here that matter. One is that this goes to show you 
that they are pulling out all the stops. I mean, they are going to do absolutely everything that they can in order to uh, prosecute and uh, you know destroy anybody who has anything to do with Trump that broke the law or, you know, because I can't even say having to do with Russia collusion because that didn't even come up in the indictment recently. They are just uh, the special prosecutor's office is looking for scalps. They're taking people down here and that they would use a a an attorney against the person the attorney is representing is very unusual. Let me just give you what the Washington Post uh, says about this. A little notice court filing unsealed this week as part of special counsel Robert Mueller's ongoing probe could have big consequences for his other targets, showing he's willing to use suspects lawyers to provide evidence against them. After unsealing a 12 count indictment against President Trump's former campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, the U.S. District Court also unsealed an opinion from Chief Judge Beryl Howell saying one of Manafort's former lawyers could be compelled to testify to the grand jury. Typically, such information is protected by attorney-client privilege, a bedrock principle of U.S. legal practice that says a lawyer must keep confidential what they are told by their clients. There are some exceptions to that confidentiality, including instances where a suspect may have lied to his or her lawyer, causing that lawyer to unwittingly lie to the government. Howell ruled that in Manafort's case, the exception applied and the attorney could be called to testify before the grand jury. This is uh, pulling out the big guns, so to speak. Uh, This is opening up territory. Forget about how much this concerns you with regard to Manafort, right? I mean, I think Manafort seems like he was conducting some pretty shady business. And I really have no dog in the fight of what ends up happening with Manafort personally. I mean... If he's not guilty, I hope that comes out in court. If he is guilty, he's going to be punished. has nothing to do with Russia collusion, as we know. But even beyond the implications specifically for Paul Manafort, what does this mean going forward? If you are on the wrong side of the politics of the moment, are federal prosecutors going to try and find a way to break attorney-client privilege so that they can get even more damaging information on you? I know that this is within specified and limited parameters, but still, I mean, nonetheless, this is troubling. And the fact that this was done and that there was so little coverage of this and there was really such a small, I think, such a small outrage session, there should have been a lot more people saying, hold on, but they should have been saying, hold on a second, but they didn't because Manafort is the enemy if you're somebody who wants Trump to have his presidency ruined and Trump to be imprisoned, all that stuff the Democrats want. So, you know, you just see in in instances like this with Manafort, really with the whole Russia collusion investigation, who has principles? Who sticks to their principles? And and who's just about whatever is politically convenient in the moment? Is attorney-client privilege something that should matter for all of us because there's a principle behind it? Or is it just a technicality that can be cast aside when the Democrats want to make an example of somebody? We should keep an eye on this. All right, I'll come back to you with some, well, with an update on my short ribs, which were delicious, I might add, and some Team Buck Speaks. 
Well, team, given the crazy week, uh, the crazy month it feels like now, which has just come to an end, and I know we're in the first day of November, uh, I wanted to take a few moments of your time before we get into the latest in our uh, series called Team Buck Speaks, where your voices are heard on the show, or at least your thoughts are heard on the show via my voice and your writing. But I made... For the first time ever, braised short ribs earlier this week. And I will tell you, I will take something of a victory lap here. My braised short ribs were phenomenal. Uh, they were absolutely delicious. I used a, a red wine reduction sauce and put them in the slow cooker after searing them in my cast iron, my seasoned cast iron pan. And the good sear was absolutely critical, and I seared all sides. Thank you for those of you who gave me that tip. I did, in fact, use it in my uh, cooking, uh, my cooking expedition, and I managed to just make even Molly, who is generally not a big red meat eater, she likes chicken and uh, salads. She thought that the short ribs were fantastic. So, if you have a great short rib dish, let me know for a fantastic sauce. Um, I obviously will mix or, or change out the normal flour for a gluten-free flour, and then the recipe should work just fine. But I am uh, really enjoying my culinary adventures. I find cooking so relaxing, and especially when it's just been a, a crazy day at the office or a crazy week uh, with everything going on. It's so nice to just take some time and just to create something. I, I guess this is what I really want to say. In another life, I kind of wish I was able to be a chef. And I know people will, the moment you say that, people start jumping in with a chef's life is, is so, uh, so difficult and the hours. And I know, I know. I probably love the idea of being a chef, maybe like a celebrity TV chef, right? But to be a, a cook in a restaurant uh, night in, night out is a tough, a tough existence. And I still think the best thing Really, the only thing that I ever read by Anthony Bourdain that I really enjoyed was his book, Kitchen Confidential, which was just a pretty no-frills look at what it's like being a chef. And I, I, I still have in my head, I mean, maybe if I could go back, if, if I come back in another life or in another generation or something, it would be fun to be a chef. I think that being involved in a, in a craft uh, people say that chefs, well, Bourdain actually wrote in his book that chefs you shouldn't think of as Artists, you should think of them as artisans or craftsmen or craftswomen who have a skill that they must replicate time and time again. It's not that they're always doing something new and creative necessarily, but it would be nice to be involved in an endeavor that is just uh, additive and gives people a degree of, of joy and pleasure. And that's my favorite thing about media. It's my favorite thing about what I do here as well. But, you know, if you're like making really great flank steak and you you really know how to sear those brussels sprouts or uh you know use the broiler to get them just perfectly crispy you tend to make everybody happy whereas in in media especially if you're fighting against narratives and dealing with the dishonest left it's a fight and whenever there's a fight there are people who are going to be unhappy and you get the occasional or in my case more than occasional email from uh, what i would call the not, you know, not another satisfied customer, the uh, leftists who are just full of rage. I, I'm always tempted to write to them 
you know, just don't listen to the show if it bothers you so much. <laughs> so it seems pretty straightforward, right? Uh, don't spend your time listening to a show that makes you you know, red with rage or something. I think that's a pretty easy, pretty easy thing. But anyway, uh, all of you listening are wonderful and, and support the show and support what I do. So thank you so much for that. It's particularly when I go on TV. When you, when you do enough TV, you just get the nasty, the nasty people start coming after you and start yelling at how you're so awful and you're a, you're a hack, you know, you're, you're Trump's poodle or you're a, a right wing nut job or whatever, whatever it may be. Ah, there you have it. So forget all that. Let's get into Team Buck Speaks and some of your uh, wonderful messages. First, we hear, we have <laughs> here from Doug. Buck, love the show. Doug, thank you so much. Interview option on your deep dive into cryptocurrency. Reach out to a fellow podcaster named Jack Spirico. He covers a lot of Bitcoin and alternative currency on his show, The Survival Podcast. Keep up the great show. I listen every day. Well, Doug, thank you so much for your kind message. Uh, very much appreciate uh, your thought about this individual. And uh, that would be great. Uh, I will see if we can have the team reach out. Um, Steve writes in, Aside from the news, the most terrifying movie I've ever seen is not found in the horror section. It's called Contagion. And if you watch it and think about it, it's extremely frightening. Well, I'm assuming, uh, I'm assuming, Steve, that Contagion is about pandemic disease. And I, I often say that, to me, that is the most terrifying thing that humanity faces. Uh, because there is already ample precedent for a virus uh, or bacterial infection to spread in a exponential fashion. And in fact, when you look at the pandemic known as the, the Black Death or the, the bubonic plague, it uh, killed somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 50 to, well, as many as 200 people, uh, sorry, 50 to 200 million people in all of Europe and Asia and the Eurasian landmass in the mid 14th, uh, in the mid 14th century. And uh, generally speaking, it, it is believed that this was, uh, that this was a, a series of different, uh, different plagues, including the bubonic plague now, which uh, I should note has gotten back into the headlines. Uh, there is plague spreading in Madagascar, according to this piece here. Uh, I, I had just heard about this earlier in the week, and I wasn't planning on talking about it, but plague still exists. Different plagues exist, and uh, contagion or outbreak or anything like, uh, anything like that where you're talking about a highly, a highly lethal and highly contagious infection that we don't have a treatment for, now in the modern age of jet airplane travel... Uh, never mind all the other forms of travel that make it much easier to spread things far and wide. That's what will be keeping me up late at night. I'll be honest with you. That's I, I worry more about uh, antibiotic-resistant bacteria by far than, well, for example, climate change, which I don't think is something to be concerned about. I just think it is something that is slowly occurring, and we are adapting, and we will be fine. Uh, we have Andy writing in with the following. Good evening. 
I've been listening to your podcast for two months now. I am very impressed with your analyzation of current events. I live in Alaska, so I am somewhat distant from the news, but I do listen to podcasts daily. I work on a 150-foot fishing vessel in the Bering Sea. I've been trying to download from iTunes with our satellite internet, but I'm not having any luck getting your podcast to load. Where else can I find the podcast? Is it possible to have episodes emailed? Thanks, Andy. Well, first of all, Andy, very cool that you're out there on a fishing vessel in the Bering Sea. And I always appreciate any of our uh, Team Buck Alaska folks for writing in or just for listening. And in terms of the podcast, you can go to bucksexton.com and there should be options there, including listening on demand on the iHeart app. So, Andy, why don't you try downloading the iHeart radio app and then just type in into the search field once you have the app, Buck Sexton with America Now, and then you should be able to listen to the show anytime you like. Got another message here from Willie who writes in, uh, where can I find your show between zero and uh, between, well, I guess, 10 and midnight Pacific time? Really enjoy the show, but am engaged when you are live. Thanks. Well, Willie, thank you. And like I said, uh, you can go bucksexton.com. We have some links up there. Also, the iHeart Radio app, which you can download to your smartphone. Uh, that is uh, a, good, a great way to listen. You can listen on demand. And then there is the podcast uh, itself, which you can download on iTunes. Mark writes in, uh, slaying the storytelling once again. Love it. Happy Halloween. Well, Mark, thank you very much. I really do appreciate that you appreciate the storytelling aspect of this, of this program, which is different from many other radio shows out there, as well as the History Deep Dives. And I, I can tell you all who are listening that I have now official clearance for my uh, side project, which is a history, think of it as uh, History Deep Dives as their own show, not three hours, but that is coming in the future. So stay tuned for that. Um, Sandra writes in with the following, Hey Buck, I'm now just seeing the headlines of the attack in New York. Hope you and your loved ones are safe. May God ease the pain of the families that were not so lucky. Sincerely, uh, Sandra, an, an uh, avid podcast listener in California. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for your uh, kind thoughts and for your support. Uh, I am fortunate. My, I'm fine, obviously, and my family and, and my loved ones are all okay. Uh, but it's heartbreaking what happened, uh, what happened yesterday here in not just the city I live in now, but my hometown, the city I grew up in, and a place that is really the only place for me that feels like home. It, it's, uh, it's deeply troubling. But uh, we, we are a resilient lot here in New York City. We, we've been through, obviously, been through tough times before, and uh, we'll come back and we'll come back strong. I think that the New York City Marathon, which is this weekend, will be an opportunity for all New Yorkers just to show how much uh, we are bouncing back and how we are uh, a city that will not will not be forced to live in fear uh, we will continue on and we will continue to prosper and thrive all right one more here before we close up the freedom hunt for the night we have theodore writing so you've watched two different versions of tombstone but never watched the outlaw josie wales i mean what are you doing with your life also twice i've heard you plead ignorance on remo williams the adventure begins I have a soft spot for it because I think it's the only movie I saw in the theater with my dad uh, who recently passed, but I think you'd like it. 
It's funny as heck, and maybe this will sell you. There's an action sequence with guys trying to kill the main character on the Statue of Liberty when it was under construction. Really cool. Shields high. Well, Theodore, with a recommendation like that, I think I am going to have to go and uh, check out this uh, this Remo Williams movie you're telling me about. I'm planning a... <laughs> every weekend that I can, I plan a staycation for myself, which just gives me an excuse to leave my apartment the bare minimum number of, of times, uh, maybe just to go on food runs. Although in New York, you can have a lot of food delivered. But I'll be looking for a movie this weekend, and if I can convince Miss Molly of uh, Remo Williams on our list, well then, I'll have a review for you when I come back on the show sometime soon. And with that, my friends, I thank you as always for hanging out with me here in the Freedom Hunt. Thanks so much for spending your time with me. Uh, tell a friend about the show. It's uh, the one single best way that the Freedom Hunt grows, that Team Buck expands, and it is very much appreciated by me. Uh, I give you everything I can with this show, and however you can tell others about it, that would be great. See you tomorrow, same time, same place, my friends. Shields high.